0: verses 1 to 10. Um, and so if you have your own Bible, I'd love for you to open that up. Uh, if you're uh, using one of the uh, Bibles that have been provided for you, uh, if you need a Bible, you can grab one of those. We'll be on page uh, 971, I believe, 971, 972, right in there. So I'd love for you to have that. We'll also have scriptures up on the screen for you. Um, so uh, one of the things I want to do is, you're giving you a chance to open your Bibles, I, I want to just touch on two things really quick. The first one is we're really, really excited about the, the marriage workshop coming up, the uh, Power of Us marriage workshop. Would love for you to be a part of that. Seriously, if you're um, married, engaged, uh, should be engaged, you're thinking about getting engaged, it's a great opportunity uh, to start looking at your relationship. And uh, And one of the really cool things about it is if you register, we'll send you a link to a website and you'll go on that website and you'll take an assessment of yourself. And so it'll tell you things like, how you handle conflict, the the ways you communicate, uh, the ways you want to be communicated to, and part of the workshop is then uh, you and your spouse or significant other have the opportunity to talk about those things, and so, um, and wrestle through, uh, hey, when when you need to say something to me, uh, I would appreciate it if you could communicate like this, and you feel like I never hear you, and the reason I never hear you is because, A, it's my fault, and B, you never communicate the way I need to, and so then you can have an argument in a controlled environment, and Then love one another, and it'll be awesome. We've done it once before. Our good friends, uh, David and Phyllis Howie, who lead these all over the the, uh, globe, will be here with us, and so you'll want to be a part of that. And so uh, we slashed the price. Uh, That's still good, $50 per couple. That includes the conference, the material, and some food. So you don't want to miss that. The price will go up after March 2nd, and so you just don't want to pay full price. So uh, get that discount. Uh, the second announcement, thing I kind of want to touch base on, first comes with an apology, okay? So uh, I'm sorry to even talk about this. This is, uh, especially if you're new or visiting at Meadowland, we don't talk about this all the time. This is abnormal. Uh, I told First Service that this is kind of like, uh, going over to a friend's house, maybe a, a good a family friend, and you're sitting around the dinner table having good conversation, and all of a sudden uh, the couple that you're visiting says, hey, we need to talk about something really, really personal. We don't care if you listen. You're going, I care because it's weird. That's kind of awkward. It's kind of like, I don't know if you ever experienced this, and maybe it happened to you. Maybe you're you're like the guy, but like, I remember there was this point that I had some really good friends who would be over all the time and spend the night. And like, I remember like that one time I had a bunch of friends over, and like Dad showed up in his underwear. And I thought, why is this happening? And I just told the guys, you're now part of the family. Dad walks around in his underwear with you here. Maybe that happened to you. Maybe you're the dad, and you should stop, and you should pray through that. But So here's an announcement, and it's, kind of, it's like a big family conversation. And maybe you're like, oh, it's kind of weird, and it is weird, so I'm sorry. But here's, here's the deal. Um, over the last few months, we've been uh, in a capital campaign uh, talking about Unleash the Vision, talking about um, putting in a well, a septic tank, a water detention pond, and to do all that would give us some great infrastructure, some stuff that uh, needs to be repaired for today, but also opens up uh, everything that we can do going into the future. It allows us to Add square footage, it allows us to do stuff to the parking lot. And so, for the last few months, we've been raising money for that by God's grace and by your generosity and, and your giving. We've reached right around $90,000 of that in just a few months. So, praise God for that and thank you for, uh, for your giving. And so, we're like applying for permits and looking it really seriously at starting that project. Is, my guess would be as soon as the, the snow is gone and the ground is kind of starting to melt, you know, frost out we'll begin that project. So now here comes kind of the backside of that. Uh, One of the things financially we've seen over the last few months is while the Unleash the Vision Fund climbs and continues to grow, the general fund is going in the exact opposite direction, okay? And so this spells deficit, right? So like the money for the well, the septic tank, the water detention pond is growing the fund for Ministry is decreasing. And so uh, I think part of what's happened is, is people get, make really big donations to that, which is awesome. And then said, hey, we're going to maybe take a few months to catch up. Or uh, maybe you've been splitting your giving. Or maybe you just diverted your giving to the general fund to unleash. And so here's, here's the whole story, and here's, here's my encouragement to you. If you've been doing that, I would encourage you to kind of reroute your giving back to the general fund, okay? Uh, it doesn't make sense for us to have a new well, a septic tank, a water detention pond if we don't have any money for ministry, right? That, that makes sense. And so uh, at Meadowland Church, we believe giving is part of the way we worship God. And so if you're newer visiting, this is just like family business and dad's going to go back in his room in just a minute and, and we're going to move on. But um, you know, the, the thing is, is, we just want you to think about that and pray through that. It's one of the ways we worship, we give, and we usually don't do Designated giving here, but the, and so right now you have that option of where to give, and I would just encourage you to kind of divert the funds back to general fund, and uh, maybe weather's been a part of it, maybe you haven't been around for a while, whatever. I'm just telling you the story. I'm giving you what's going on here. Is the unleash division keeps to climb, the general fund is like going the opposite way, and so um, we just like to see the general fund turn back around, and I think we've got what we need uh, for unleash, and uh, we'll keep we'll keep going that way. So we all good. Dad's back in his bedroom. Let's pray, Father God. We come before you this morning, and uh, what we really need this morning is to see you, Jesus, for who you are, God. I thank you for all the different things that have already happened here this morning. God, I thank you for uh, the chance for us to get to know one another, to shake some hands, to uh, learn some new names, God, and um, to maybe make even some new friends. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity that we've had to exalt your name, to worship you through song, Lord, to sing about you, not. Not all of us like to sing, but yet we know there's something significant about um, singing to you and singing about you to exalt your name, Lord, because you alone are worthy. And we thank you that uh, Paul reminds us in Galatians, God, that you are a God who first loved us. Lord, that we don't work for your love. Lord, we don't strive to be accepted by you. Lord, that before we ever loved you, you first loved us. And you sent your son Jesus to pay the penalty for our sin so that we could be reunited and reconciled with you. So God, I pray today that above all things, what we would see is Jesus. Lord, that he would be high and exalted, uh, that he would be uh, worthy of our praise, God, and that uh, we would do that with the way we think, with our minds, what we love, with our hearts, the way we feel, with our emotions this morning. God, that we would give you the glory in all things that we do. God, I pray that you would help us this morning, Lord, as we walk through this passage, God. I pray that you would speak to us. I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds so that we can see you and hear you and love you, God. Help us to be hearers and doers of your word this morning, God. And I pray that we would all be utterly transformed by your gospel this morning, the believing power or the changing power of God for all those that believe. And so we just humble ourselves we come before you, God, and what we really need is to experience you. And so we ask for you to show up and for you to work and for you to be glorified of all things. Jesus, it's in your name that we pray. Amen. If you've been around for the last couple weeks, you you know that as our study of Galatians, each week has been the gospel. Week number one, the gospel. Week number two, the gospel. We're in week number three. It's once again the gospel. Uh, Paul keeps saturating us with the gospel. And and one of the reasons for this is because uh, there's false teachers now beginning to teach a false gospel. I love in Galatians chapter 1, Paul says they teach a false gospel that's not even a gospel at all. I just don't, need, I just don't know what else to call it. So we'll call it a, a false gospel. And every time Paul presents the gospel to us, uh, we have to wrestle with it. We have to walk away with it and say, what am I supposed to do with this? And I think this week as we begin Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, it gets really, really personal. It gets really, really practical uh, for us as we see The gospel. And and when we talk about the gospel, we mean the gospel is the central message of the Bible, or the good news about the person and the work of Jesus. That's what we mean when we talk about The gospel, the central message of the Bible, if you ask the question, who's the hero of the Bible? It's Jesus. What's the point of the Old Testament? We're sinners who need a Messiah who is Jesus. What's the point of the New Testament? Jesus is the Messiah. He's fulfilled the law, and he's set us free by his life, his death, and his resurrection. We no longer have to go to hell, but we can have life because of Jesus. We can be forgiven because of Jesus. We can be reconciled with our Father in heaven because of Jesus. And Paul continues to give this to us over and over again, and I think because he wants us to see it, because he wants us to feel it, because he wants us to so fall in love with the gospel that we would almost be like bloodhounds. We could sniff out a false gospel from far away, that somebody begin to teach us something other than the gospel, we go, no, 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 I, I don't know what that is, but I know the gospel well enough to know that this isn't that. And so uh, this week, Paul, once again, is going to lead us through what it means to be saved. In fact, he's going to ask some really big questions, I think, in Galatians chapter 2 that are really, really important in how we answer them. I think it's really important in how they were answered in the context that Paul was asking. So Galatians chapter 2, starting in verse 1, here's the big question. Here's the big question. How does someone become saved? How does someone become saved? Saved. Now, there's a little bit of Christian jargon in there. Like, I'm not talking how do you save at Costco. I'm not talking about how do you save big money at Menards, right? When I talk about saved, it means that every single one of us will one day stand before a holy, holy, holy God who will judge us. And the reality is, is He can charge us according to our life and our ability or our lack thereof of to do good works. And so that we will be judged by our righteousness, what scripture tells us is because we're sinful people who have sinned against an eternal God, we've committed eternal sin that will be judged, which means we're subject of God's wrath. Or, this is the good news, we could be judged according to the works and the righteousness of Jesus. That one day when we stand before a holy, holy God, that we could be saved from God's wrath, not because of anything we've done, but because of who Jesus is and because of what he's done. That's the good news. That we could be saved by grace through faith in Christ Jesus. In Galatians chapter 2, starting in verse 1, this is Paul's big question. How does somebody become saved? What's the deal with that? How do you know if you're really saved? How do you know if you're not saved? How do I know if you're saved? How do you know if I'm saved? So let's jump in. Galatians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Paul says, Then after 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem, with Barnabas taking Titus along with me. I went because of the revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. Here's what's happening. This is 14 years after Paul begins his ministry. Uh, Last week, Paul told us that he was on the road to Damascus, that Jesus leaves heaven, comes down from heaven, knocks Paul off his horse, blinds him, says, Saul, Saul, why is it that you persecute me? He re- recognizes that this is God, that this is the voice of Jesus. Paul is pursued by God, saved by God, called by God, commissioned by God, and then sent by God to go preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Paul then said that for three years, he went to Asia to meditate on this, to figure out exactly what the implications of this were for his life. And so, if you take three plus 14, this is 17 years after Paul's ministry. And what he's telling the church in Galatia is he's saying, listen, I want to tell you about something that happened. He said, 14 years into ministry, there there became some problems, that as I was... Preaching the gospel, people were getting saved, churches were being established. I was then leaving those churches to go plant other churches. There were these false teachers that were coming along, and they were saying that the gospel that I preached wasn't sufficient, that we had to add to it, that it wasn't the whole story. And some of the reports were that the church in Jerusalem with the original apostles, that they disagreed not with my message, but with my methods. And so Paul says... After 14 years, I decided to go to Jerusalem to make sure that my ministry isn't fruitless, to make sure that my ministry is not in vain, that I haven't been running in vain with the ministry that I'm doing to the Gentiles or to the non-Jews. Now, here's what's happening. The false teachers are coming in and doing what we've been calling bad math when it comes to salvation. What they've been teaching and what they've been preaching is for someone to truly be saved by Jesus, it's Jesus plus something. And each of them kind of has their own take on this. It's Jesus plus baptism. It's Jesus plus obedience. It's Jesus plus circumcision. Uh, Jesus plus circumcision seems to be the big one because this is what Paul's really going to address here. It's Jesus plus Old Testament law. We could put the whole thing under this banner of Jesus plus Judaism equals salvation. Now, here's why we have to understand this. In the early church especially the church in Jerusalem, not every Jew was a Christian, but every Christian was a Jew. Which meant, if you ask the question, what does a saved person look like, you would say, a saved person really looks like a good Jew. Uh, Somebody who loves Jesus and fulfills the Old Testament law. Someone that uh, loves Jesus and follows the agreed-upon behavior of, of our nation of our culture and of our our religion. Now here's the thing we we have to separate this a little bit and understand this because this doesn't make sense for us. This isn't intuitive for us. Being an American isn't like hey I belong to the nation of the United States and I'm not of, I'm not just of those people but there's not just the culture of the United States and there's not the religion. Hey what do you believe in? I believe in the USA, right? But for Judaism that's the case. I'm From the Jewish nation, that's the blood that runs in my vein, that's my genealogy, I'm Jewish, I'm a Hebrew. I also have the Jewish culture, okay, so there's rules and regulations and laws, and then there's a religion, Judaism. And so what happens is is to be a Jew is all three, it's my people, it's my belief, it's my nation, I'm all of those things. And so what happens is, is you would say a really good Christian, a Christ follower, someone who believes in Jesus and also is a really good Jew. And so there's agreed-upon behavior, there's agreed-upon language, there's agreed-upon customs, rules, and regulations. And in the early church, and especially for these false teachers, they're saying, hey, to be a Christ follower, to really be saved, to know for sure that you've been reconciled with your Father and you're going to heaven, you have to be saved by Jesus, and you have to be a Jew, And if you're not Jewish by nation, you need to at least be Jewish by following the cultural standards or believing the religious beliefs. And so for us in this room, my guess would be most of us are not Jews, which means we're in the other category, Gentiles. I didn't see anybody wearing a yarmulke this morning. Okay, So we're going to go in the Gentile category. Okay, So we're over there. And what these guys very practically are saying is, Is that if you or I truly want to be saved and say that we're Christ followers, we have to also become Jews. Okay, so this is a very legalistic approach to Christianity. That you and I would have to culturally figure out what this means for us to leave the culture we live in and become Jewish. Very practically, It would mean that if you were at Meadowland Church and we believe life is a journey, we want to walk that journey with you, and you said, hey, I want to get saved and I want to be baptized and I want to get involved and I want to plug in and I want to grow spiritually here with this group of believers, we would say, hey, you should attend a membership class. You should learn about the history of the church, our vision, where we're going, and how God has gifted you and how those gifts would play a part in accomplishing the vision here. And what that would mean is that part of the membership talk would be as, Oh, and by the way, you have to become a Jew. And so here's some things that you have to do. You have to begin to eat kosher. You have to go on a kosher diet, okay? And we would give you the rules and regulations. We'd even teach you how to cook kosher. It'd mean that each week you'd have to obey the Sabbath. You could only take so many steps. You could only do so many things. It would mean for men that you would have to be circumcised. If you weren't circumcised, we would just circumcise you in the membership class, uh, men, it would mean that, yeah, you know, men, you would have to grow beards, have to, even for you that can't grow beards, you would have to. Uh, for those of you that have beards, but you groom them, you would no longer be able to groom your beard. No shaving, no trimming, none of that. You are growing a full-fledged beard. Uh, it means that no more mixed fabrics, okay? 100% cotton or nothing, okay? No more polyester mixture in there, no, no more, it's either 100% or nothing, it means No bacon or shellfish. Say goodbye to shrimp, oysters, all that stuff. Bacon, out of there. Okay? It also means the beef that you eat can no longer be medium rare or rare. In fact, there can be no blood in it. Okay? So, everything well done. Okay? You you have to do that. However, if you're bummed about that, locusts, crickets, and grasshoppers are now part of your diet. So, feel free. Indulge from time to time. Cover them in chocolate. It also means, how many of you here are both men and you have a brother? How many men have brothers here? Go ahead, raise your hand. That's awesome. I, I don't have a brother, so, so I'm not raising my hand. According Old Testament law, if your brother is married and has a wife, your sister-in-law, if your brother dies, you have to marry her, even if you're already married. Okay? And some of you are going, you've never met my sister-in-law, and I haven't. But here's the deal. She's yours if your brother dies. So take care of him. Okay? Especially if you don't like her. You might want to talk about diet, nutrition, and exercise. You know, stop smoking, get healthy. I don't want to marry your wife, okay? And practically, that was what it would mean for you to be saved. Do you love Jesus and will you marry your sister-in-law if you need to? Would you marry, would you love Jesus and get rid of certain things in your diet? Would you love Jesus and be willing to let one of Steve or the elders perform surgery on you? I'm not doing it. (laughs) And so the reason we're able to laugh about this and kind of make light of it is because it's not a big deal for us. In fact, if you're a Christ follower for a believer, you know that's not a requirement to be saved. And the reason you know that is because, thankfully, Paul wins the argument in Galatians 2. But this has huge implications. And the false teachers are coming out of the woodwork saying, if you want to be saved, this is what it looks like. It's Jesus plus Judaism. And Paul's saying, no, 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 it's just Jesus. He's sufficient. He's the way, the truth, and the life. You don't need any more. There's no plus sign. Jesus plus nothing is salvation. Not Jesus plus Judaism. And so Paul says, let's take this argument to the next level. And he goes to Jerusalem. It says that he took his friend Barnabas, the encourager with him. But he also took Titus. And here's what we know about Titus, Galatians chapter 2, verse 3. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Paul is taking Titus to Jerusalem, and here's going to be his question. Is Titus saved? He goes, "Let's, let's just figure this thing out once and for all. That We've got people preaching a false gospel, but we've got a church full of Christians who are also Jews, but here's the real question. Is Titus? Really, really? saved. Now Titus is a Gentile, he's a Greek, he's not Jewish. but Paul had uh, two guys that he loved and disciples, Titus and Timothy. He brought letters to both of them in the New Testament. We have first and second Timothy, we have Titus, both letters from Paul to these men. Timothy decided that he would be circumcised so that he could do ministry to both Jews and Gentiles, right? Titus pulled an MC hammer and said, can't touch this. He said, I'm not doing it. And Paul said, well, I'm not going to force you to do it. And so Paul's going to take Titus now to Jerusalem. And here's the question, is this man saved? Here's what we know about Titus. Paul loves him. In Titus chapter 1, verse 4, he calls Titus my true child in common faith. He says, this, this guy is a son in the faith, that's how I look at him. I'm like his father spiritually, and he is like my son. He is, loves Jesus and has been saved by Jesus. He is a pastor, a teacher, has a fruitful ministry. And let's just be honest, if you're the guy that a book of the Bible is named after, you're probably okay with the Lord, right? And yet he must have trusted Paul and loved Paul to the point that he's allowing Paul to put them in this very vulnerable spot. Paul says, hey Barnabas, you're good, come with me. Hey Titus, uh, according to this theology that's being taught, you're not saved, but you come with me to Jerusalem. And everybody knows about you, everybody knows about the churches you're planting, everybody knows about the people who are being led to Jesus by you and the people that you're discipling. Everybody knows that, but what they don't know is what's going on under the hood. Like they don't know that you're not circumcised So here's what I need you to do. I need you to come to Jerusalem, show him your stuff, and then I'm going to ask the question, is he saved based on a surgery? And Titus probably went, I don't really want to do this, but I'll go. So Paul takes Titus to Jerusalem, and the question is, here's the deal, guys. I just want to decide this. Let's not talk philosophy anymore. Let's not argue about this anymore. Here's the deal. Is our brother Titus saved? When Jesus said, it is finished, Was that sufficient for Titus? Or is Titus not saved, not reconciled, not a child of God, simply because of a surgery that he has not had? You see, the question behind the question is, how does the gospel work in different cultures? So if people really believe that you have to be a good Jew to be a Christian, Paul's saying, well, is that really true? And if the answer is no, then we have to ask the question of, what does it look like to be a Christ follower if you live in a different culture? Paul's saying, does, so does it have to look the same? Do Christ followers in Jerusalem look the same as Christ followers in Greek? Do they look like Christ followers in Africa or in Egypt or in America? Because is there room for us to be culturally different even though we've been saved by the same gospel? see, when we talk about missions, when we talk about reaching people, or we talk about ministry, there's really two elements. Number one, there's the message. And when we talk about the message, that's the unchanging word of God. We believe that, that in the Bible are truths, commandments, and principles that are unchanging. The gospel doesn't change based on our culture. The principles in here don't change on culture what Christ says about marriage is just as true here as it is in Africa as it is in Antarctica but what scripture says about how we steward our finances is the same in Canada as it is in South America that doesn't change but what scripture says about Jesus in the gospel is universal that message doesn't change on who we're talking to it doesn't change based upon your longitude and your latitude It is the living, active Word of God, sharper than a double-edged sword, and it is the same everywhere. What does change, however, is the method. The way we do ministry, the way we engage with people, the way we engage with culture varies from culture to culture and from church to church. We shouldn't assume that the way we do ministry here would work everywhere. And we should not assume that just because somebody somewhere does ministry a certain way that it would work here. That part of being a missionary, a part of thinking on mission is to say, how do I take the context of where I am and engage those people with the gospel? This is why Paul says, I've become all things to all people. To the Jew, a Jew. To the Gentile, a Gentile. To the weak, I've become weak. Now, Paul's not saying that he has multiple personalities. He says, when I... Present the gospel to a Jewish person, I think, in a Jewish context. Because I don't invite that person out for a bacon dinner. We don't go to the ballpark and get hot dogs on that one. Unless they're kosher, right? He goes, and to the Gentile, I think a different way. And to those that are weak, those that are suffering, I talk a different way. And that we would think about the methods that we use to present the gospel. That's why in some churches they have short services, In other churches like this one, you have a long-winded preacher, and I'll just get you home by dinner, and we'll call it good. In some churches, you have a variety of attire that in some places you wouldn't dare think about showing up unless you're wearing a three-piece suit. Thank God this isn't one of them. That that's part of our culture. Come as you are. That God judges your heart. He cares more about what's going on in here than he does what's going on here. And that those change based on culture. That some places the music would change because they would engage people differently. Uh, I was made aware of a long time ago a church out west that is a cowboy church. You either drive a truck or you ride a horse there. And you show up in boots and there is big gallon hats and country music. No more, no less. And I think that's awesome but not my context, I wouldn't go there. I'm struggling with the fact that we use the word hoedown in a service, okay? thought I was in the wrong place this morning. I thought I must, I must have to go, okay? But that can change. That's open for discussion. That's open for, for changing. That's not always the same, that culturally we should change. As we seek to reach the next generation, we shouldn't do that like we did for the last generation. See, there's really three ways to respond to this. At least I only have time for three. So you talk about the message that's unchanging and the methods that we use to preach the gospel. There's really three ways to respond. There's the legalist mindset. Okay, The legalist said, says the principles and the methods never change. You never change the message, and you never change the methods. And usually what a legalist says without saying it is, the methods are based on my preferences. So it's about me. I'm holy, so you should be holy. And this becomes a big generational thing in the church, right? You'll talk about, well, I think drums are evil, and there shouldn't be rock music, and we should everyone should use a flannel graph, and everyone should use the New King James Version, right? And you go, that's awesome, but none of that is biblical. There's room to change some of that stuff. And a legalist says, no, no, it's my way or the highway. In fact, a legalist takes it so far to say either you do it the way I want you to do it or I consider it sin. The problem is my name is not at the end of this book and so I don't get to decide what's right and wrong. I just follow Jesus. Now there's a complete opposite way to respond and that's with the liberal mindset. A liberal says who really cares about the message and who really cares about the method as long as we can get people saved. A liberal says maybe we can sin as long as we're getting the job done. Like we don't really have to do anything to be obedient. There's, there's no really holiness or sanctification process here. Like, let's just get the job done because he's not doing it. Mm, that might not be right either. But I think there's what we would call biblical Christianity. The message is binding. It never changes. You turn to the end of Revelation. Anyone who adds to this message or takes away, I think Jesus is pretty serious when he says that. The method never changes. But the methods are flexible. That The methods change all the time. That if we were going to start an inner city ministry, it would look completely different than the ministry here. That if we were going to start a ministry to missionary kids overseas, we would have to do ministry different than we do it here. If we were going to start a Bible camp somewhere, it would look completely different than it looks right here. That we would say the message never changes. We are compelled by the gospel, the unchanging word of God. However, that can be done in all kinds of different ways. And Paul says, we've got to land on this. He's telling the apostles, we've got to make some sort of decision on this thing because there's too much open room, there's too big of a gap for misunderstanding. To the point that false teachers who don't love Jesus and aren't about Jesus are saying that these guys aren't saved even though they believe the same gospel you believe. They believe in the same Jesus you believe in, but culturally they're different than you. So the question is, what does it look like to be saved? Is it a cultural thing? Does everybody have to be Jewish? Or is there room for another way? Galatians chapter 2, starting in verse 4. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they may bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Paul says there's a dangerous problem. He said a false gospel leads to slavery. And he said these false teachers are coming in and they're asking these questions and they're throwing these stones and they're saying these guys aren't saved. And the reality of it is it's not just about methods of ministry. It's about making them slaves to the law. That they would have to jump through hoops and they'd have to do things a certain way so that Jesus would somehow become more accessible to them than he is right now. And I love this because Paul says, to them I don't give any time and I don't give any attention. I'm not swayed by them. One of the things you have to know in the church world is there's people who don't do ministry who like to critique and complain about people who do do ministry. And it's always awesome. So tell me what you're doing. Nothing. But I'd like to tell you what you're doing wrong. So let me get this right. You don't do anything, but you want to talk about those of us who do do something how we're doing it wrong. Yes, that's not ministry. That's not God's calling on your life. What does God called you to do? Just to critique everybody that attempts to do ministry. Oh, you're a false teacher. No, I'm not a false teacher. I'm an apologetic. No, no. Paul says you're a false teacher from a false gospel. Well, I don't think I'm that. Well, I do. And, and, and here's why. Paul says these guys have tried to bring us back to slavery. They're trying to rob us of the freedom that Christ has come to give us. And one of the things Paul reveals, and you've got to see this, is Paul reveals his humility. Paul says, listen, I'm not going to listen to those guys. Those guys aren't worth me listening to. And listen, sometimes there's people that are not worth listening to. But if there's one guy in the Bible other than Jesus who could probably say and be right and not sin, that they don't need to listen to anybody else, it's Paul. I mean, this is just my interpretation of this, but Paul, Paul's the kind of guy that goes, Here, here's, here's kind of my story I was a Hebrew, a Hebrew, born of the Benjamin tribe. I was the best of the best. To the law, I'm blameless. I'm like the Kennedys of being a Pharisee. I'm CEO. Because my life is going this way, and then Jesus leaves heaven after the ascension, comes down, knocks me off my horse, blinds me, has a conversation with me, and saves me. Paul's like, listen, I wasn't going to a new believer's Bible study. I was shutting down churches. Like, I wasn't looking to get saved, I was looking to shut down the entire message and people of Jesus. And Jesus himself said, hey, I got a plan for your life, and it's not to do what you're doing. He then calls Paul, commissions Paul, personally tells Paul what the gospel message is, and then sends him to do ministry. If there's one guy that can go, I don't need your approval, it's Paul. In fact, I think Paul could tell the other apostles, like, hey, that's cute how you deserted Jesus. Like... But he came down and grabbed me. He came down and extended the right hand of fellowship and knocked me off the horse and then preached to me so that I might understand. He's called me. He's commissioned me. In fact, most of the apostles are reaching those who are Jewish. And He goes, he called me to do what you're not doing. Like, Remember that whole thing Jesus said to you, go into all the world, to the ends of the world? You weren't doing your job, so he called me so that I could go to other people that you weren't reaching. And Paul goes, That's not how I roll. Paul says, to the apostles, I'll submit myself. To the apostles, I'll humble myself and have a conversation. Now, don't miss this. What Paul is saying is that that the message, no wiggle room. In fact, he told us in Galatians 1, I already met with Peter and James. I preached the gospel to them. They said, that's good enough for us, and I left. He goes, I'm not here to talk about that. He said, but what I am here to talk about is my methods, that I would give the apostles the opportunity to talk about how I'm doing ministry and the methods that I'm using, that I would get real-time feedback from them, that I would allow them to critique me, that I'd allow them to speak into my life. I think Paul just reflects Jesus to us. Like Paul says this about Jesus in Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, So, to the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul goes, That's who Jesus is. Jesus was humble, Jesus submits himself to the Father. Paul says, and the Father has exalted Jesus' name above every name. There's no name more important than his name that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is the Lord. Now watch this, this is Paul's argument. Even in the exalted status he has, when you glorify his name, Paul says, who do you really glorify? Glory to the Father. He says, even in his exaltation, Christ says, no, 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 it's for my Father. It's not about me, it's about him. See, one of the things you have to be very, very careful of is people who claim to be Christians but are not willing to submit themselves to spiritual authority. Paul says those false teachers, those guys who think they've somehow been called by God, somehow have a message that's outside the gospel, they submit to no one. Paul goes, but that's not how Jesus did it, and that's not how I did it. I would submit myself to those who are established spiritual authorities in the church. Paul goes, even I'm subject to that. So Paul goes, I'll go to Jerusalem. And I'll talk with guys, he calls them the pillars. And I'll allow them to speak into my life. He said, but I'm not, I'm not talking to those guys. I'm not talking to the ones that are throwing the stones. I'm not talking to the ones that are blogging in their mom's basement. So I'm talking to the guys who are doing ministry. The guys who are in the foxholes saving people by the gospel of Jesus. Guys that are taking hits for the gospel. People who are leading churches that are growing, not guys who are looking for egos and book deals. It was I'll submit myself to them, and it's in that humility that Paul asked this question. And he says, "In your mind, when you think about a good Christian, tell me what that looks like." I think the church in Jerusalem would have said, "Well, a good Christian is someone who's been radically saved by Jesus; that they walk in accordance with the Holy Spirit; they've been utterly transformed." And then the culture came in, and a man would be circumcised, an untrimmed beard, and he'd follow the law, and there'd be no bacon or selfish. Paul goes, I can accept that. Paul goes, but is there room in our methods to believe that there could be someone who is radically saved by Jesus, walks in accordance with the Holy Spirit, has been utterly transformed by the gospel, and trims his beard isn't circumcised, doesn't know all the old law, likes his flamin' young wrapped in bacon with a side of shrimp. Could it be that? Could it be that? Could it be that it's true that Jesus is sufficient, and that salvation isn't Jesus plus, it's just Jesus? See, the big implication for us is this. If you're honest with yourself, if you're a Christian Christ follower, if I ask you the question, what does it look like for someone to be saved? In the back of your head, you draw a picture, and that person looks a lot like you. That person is passionate about the things that you're passionate about. That person would never commit the sins that you would never commit. That person would agree with everything you say, and that person would protest everything that you would protest. And all of a sudden, we begin to paint a picture to say every Christian should look like me. Yeah, wouldn't be the church be awesome if every Christian looked like me? What happens is that's where legalism sets in. But we begin to say, well, I read my Bible every morning. Do you read your Bible every morning? Well, no. Ooh. Ooh. Mm. I pray for a certain amount of time. How long do you pray for? Ooh. Really? I like this football team. What football team? Ooh, really? You have a what in your house? And it requires a litter box? Really? Why? That's an unclean animal. I see all of a sudden there's room for legalism all of a sudden we begin to create external factors for judging people on are they saved or not. This is what Paul says. How do we measure salvation? Galatians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. And for those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. Paul says, here's the beauty of this. When all the church leaders got together, you know what they, they said? They said, Christ is sufficient. So they added nothing to the message. They didn't say, yeah, yeah. go back to every church you've ever planted and tell them they all have to become Jews. Go back and tell them they have to abandon their culture and live within our culture. Tell them no more bacon, no more selfish, no more freedom in Christ. You have to live according to the law. And you better do it right because God won't love you, he won't accept you, and he won't save you unless you do it right. Paul says that's a false gospel. They didn't say that. They added nothing to my message. He says they looked at Titus and said, Of course, Titus is saved. When Jesus said, It is finished, it wasn't based on a surgical procedure. It was based upon his life, his death, and his resurrection. Paul says, Of course he's saved. And Paul says, Then how do we measure it? How do we know if somebody's saved and if somebody's not saved? How do we know if someone's really walking with Jesus or just pretending to walk with Jesus? Because Scripture gives us all kinds of instructions. Beware of wolves in sheep clothing. Well, there must be a difference. Beware of vipers. Beware of false teachers. Beware of false prophets. Beware of those who would scheme to take you from Jesus. So surely there must be a difference. There must be a way to discern, hey, this guy's really walking with Jesus and this guy we should maybe be concerned about. And how do we do it? And here's where I want to tread lightly, but I want you to kind of follow me through this. I don't think it's through external factors. Because it's hard. Listen, there is stuff every Christian is supposed to do that is commanded by Scripture. But see, I begin to ask you a question. You read your Bible every morning? No. Well, that's Jesus and Bible reading, right? Do you serve in a ministry? No. It's Jesus and serving. I might ask you the question Do you have any tattoos? And you go, well, no, I don't have any tattoos. What are you, a conservative legalist? You have a problem with the freedom that Christ has given us? Well, no. Well, then go get a tattoo. Do you drink alcohol? Do you have a problem with people who drink alcohol? Well, what do you mean? You see, the other problem is we can take this too far. That we can end up in a place where somehow we can either go so far that we're legalists that say, you have to be saved. The only way to be saved is if you make it through the grid that I determine. And the other opposite is is we say, hey, everybody just do whatever the heck you want to do and one day we'll stand before Jesus and we'll see who makes it. Ooh, he didn't make it. Ooh, that could have fooled me. See, Paul says there's got to be a better way. But we can't say people who are saved have to look like me. People who are saved have to fit my culture. People who are saved have to fit my parameters. In fact, Paul says this. He says it's all about Jesus. In fact, he says that Galatians 2.6, I love this, they added nothing to me. Paul goes, they agreed it was Christ and Christ alone. Look at Titus, and they're like, man, put your pants back on. You're saved. Man, what are you doing, Paul? He goes, it's not about that. It's about Jesus. Galatians chapter 2, starting in verse 9. And when James and Peter and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, if, if I were you, I would underline that phrase in the Bible. I think it's so important. When they perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles, and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Paul goes, what's beautiful about this is, we all got together and we asked this really important question of, is Titus saved? And we had this really great conversation about the gospel, and we determined is the gospel is sufficient to save all people, no matter where they live, no matter their longitude, their latitude, no matter their culture. And there's even room for variances among the believers. That you can be saved by Jesus and still be a Jew and follow the law, but you can also be saved by Jesus and have a Gentile, be a Gentile and really like bacon. You can do that. And Paul says, The way, the best way to determine if somebody is saved is by can you perceive the grace that was given to them? Can you see it? Does the faith that they have work itself out? Do you see Christ at work in this person? Can you see the change of who they used to be and who Christ is creating them to be? If the answer is no, then maybe you need to have a really hard conversation. If the answer is yes, then the faith that saved them is the same faith that is changing them. Listen, if your faith isn't changing you, it probably hasn't saved you yet. Paul says, these men looked at Titus' life. And they're like, man, we don't, we, don't have to, we don't have to go very far with this. You were radically transformed by the gospel. You love Jesus. We can see Jesus working in you. Of course you're saved. Of course it's not about some Old Testament law. It's not about us just setting some parameters if you do this, 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 and this. Because here's the thing, right? We could all get together right now, break into groups and, and come up with a list. Every Christian has to do these 20 things. And here's the danger, right? I could do all 20 things and not love Jesus. I could read my Bible every day. I could go to a Bible study. I could join your prayer meeting. I could put Caleb on in my car. I could take down certain pictures on my wall and put up crocheted Bible verses. You know, I could do all that. And say, I just fulfilled your list. And according to your list, now God has to love me because I jumped through the loops. In fact, there's just a few things I think we need to consider here. Practically for us. Number one, growing things change. Growing things change. As believers, there's a certain level of flexibility we should have. That we should be growing and that we should be changing. You cannot walk with Jesus and stay the same. And see, I'm not telling you that, hey, you need to begin to do these things. What I'm saying is if I understand the gospel correctly is that if Jesus has saved you, then that same Jesus is changing you, which means he's at work in you. So you're becoming more like him. It means that continually you're repenting of sin and you're turning away from it and you're continually becoming more like him. And so that you'll be changing, and the longer you walk with Jesus, the different, the more different you'll be. And that we should be able to perceive that grace about you. And this is where we celebrate things. This is why small groups are so important. This is why when you have a home group and that person prays for the very first time. That happened in our home group a couple of weeks ago. For the first time I heard somebody pray and I went, that was significant. Jesus must be doing something because they never prayed before. Maybe they were just afraid. Maybe they didn't know what to say. Maybe they didn't want to be judged. But for the first time, they led our group in prayer. And i went, like, that's significant. I perceived the grace. That's why we need to know one another so that we can see Christ at work in our lives. So we can see the guy in a situation where we go, man, like a year ago, he would have killed that guy. But instead, he held his, that's grace. He held his tongue. He didn't knock the lights out of that guy. Maybe Jesus isn't in him. And that we would change. Now here's the other side of that: is you can't fall in love with this church as it is. Like don't fall in love with Meadowland Church as it is today, because it will change. If you've been around for over six years, you know this place has changed incredibly in the last six years. And our methods should change. We should try new things. We should do different things to reach different people. And we fall in love with programs and we fall in love with the methods that we use today and then one day we want to change those things and people get really upset we go, but it was never about the methods, it was about Jesus. Why did we fall in love with the methods? We should just love Jesus and we should love the message and then we should be willing to try just about anything as long as it's not sinful or foolish to reach people and grow people for the gospel. Growing things change. Number two, Jesus needs to be at the center. Jesus needs to be at the center. If it is true that Christ is sufficient for our salvation, it means that he is the most important thing in our lives. And sometimes it's hard to articulate this. We'll say things like, he needs to be the top priority, or he needs to be first. But maybe the clearest picture would be is that Jesus needs to be the center. He's the center of your life. Every word, every action, every thought, every deed flows from that center. And if Jesus is the only way to be saved and if he's all sufficient, if he's the way, the truth, and the life, if the equation is Jesus plus nothing equals everything, then he needs to be at the center. And we need to keep him at the center. We need to center ourselves on Jesus. The author of Hebrews says, fix your eyes on the author and the perfecter of your faith. And that we would think about Jesus, and we would pray to Jesus, and that we would say, Jesus, I want you to take center today in my life. You're the most important. You're the most urgent. If the only thing I get to today, Jesus, is knowing you and loving you and allowing you to work in me, then I've accomplished enough. And we put him the center. I think far too many people and far too many churches lose sight of this. That we say, Jesus is sufficient for my salvation, but now we sideline him and we talk about methods, things that we like. And that rather than looking to him, we look at things that we like to determine are we being successful? Are people being saved? What does a Christian look like? That we need to keep Jesus at the center. You might say, How do I do that? Through prayer. Through Bible reading, through fellowship with other believers. if you want to know his voice, you first have to know his word. If you want to see him, you first have to get into the Word and see him within the context of scriptures. The third thing is this, then we need to have fellowship with all believers, with all believers. I love this, is that what happens is, is the church tells Paul, "Hey, you guys are in." So as he extended his hand of fellowship to us. And he, what he's saying is, is, hey, we're not two churches. Jesus is not establishing the church to the Jews and the church to the Gentiles. We're all one family. He goes, this is all about Jesus, which means if he is our father, we're all sons and we're all daughters, even though our cultures might be different, even though we might do things a little bit differently over here, although we might have kosher at our men's breakfast and you guys will probably have bacon and you know these guys were a little bit jealous, Right? He said, even though you might do some of that stuff, we're still brothers and sisters. And one of the things we have to consider, one of the things we have to do is we cannot judge people based on our preferences. And we're not always good at that. That's one of the things I love about Meadowland Church. We've always said from the beginning, we are a church full of hurting, broken people. And I don't think there's a lot of judging. I think you can come in here as you are, and and people will love you. But we got to stay on top of that. So it doesn't take a lot to drift from that, right? Guy shows up with tattoos all over his body, and you go, ooh. Guy shows up with no tattoos on his body, and all the tattooed people go, "Legalist, stay away from him. Right? Guy shows up driving a certain type of car, and you make assessments of him. You see a family walk in, and the kids are a little unruly. And instead of thinking, like, maybe it was a struggle for them getting to church today, you judge their entire family. Paul says, hey, don't make a big deal about things that Jesus already covered with his blood. And how dare you let those things divide you? You don't divide the church into the bacon eaters and the non-bacon eaters, right? You just celebrate Jesus with one another. You put the vegetarians over here and the vegetarians say, great, more veggies for us. You put the meat eaters over here and they go, you eat the vegetables and we'll eat more meat for us. Right? You have the Bears fan and, and the Packers fan. We just pray for them, but we don't divide over them. In my own heart, maybe the most practical application of this is, according to the gospel, you could simultaneously wear a Packers jersey, hold a cat, and listen to country music, and Christ is sufficient for you. And although I might not understand you, you're part of the family of God, and I love you. And I want what's best for you. In fact, it seems like the guys in the, in the church took it a step further, and they said, hey, don't forget about the poor. Say, hey, don't forget that we're all in this together. And don't allow the fact that maybe some people have mistreated you, allow you to mistreat other people, but remember the poor. Now this becomes really, really significant, but because we find out not too long after this, it's the church in Jerusalem that become the poor. And we actually see later in other scripture verses that the Gentile churches support with their finances what little they have the churches in Jerusalem, and you see unity, and you see love, and you see support. So I think we walk away with this, and we think, how am I changing? In my own life, how would people perceive the grace of Christ in my life? I think we have to all work on keeping Jesus at the center. Are you spending time with him? Do you understand that he has already loved you, already accepted you, that he's already called you his own through salvation? That we don't serve, we don't worship, we don't give, we don't obey to gain God's love. But we do all of those things because we understand and we're motivated by he first loved us. That before I ever loved him, he first loved me. Before I had thoughts of him, he died to save me. And the fact that my Heavenly Father says I'm with you, I'm for you, I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you, you are mine, you've been saved, nothing can take you from me, that that motivates me to say I want to worship you and I want to love you more and I want to live my life for you because you are the author and the giver of my life. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you this morning, we thank you for Jesus. God, we thank you that you have given us your son as our savior. God, I pray this morning that as we look at your word, God, I pray that you would speak in a mighty way. God, I pray that we would see you for who you are, that we would be thankful that you, Jesus, alone are enough. God, not that we would abuse the grace that has been given to us, but we would Surrender ourselves to you and live as your disciples, being motivated by the love and the salvation that you so freely gave us. God, I pray that there may be some of us here this morning that maybe the only way for us to respond this morning is that we need to be saved by you. That maybe today we would see our sin and our need for a Savior that we would understand that our sin keeps us from you, and one day we will stand before you and be judged. And if we're judged by our own works, our own righteousness, we will experience your wrath, and we will be sent to a place called hell that is a place apart from you for all of eternity. But because of Jesus, the good news of the gospel, we don't have to experience that, but we can be judged according to his person and his work and his righteousness. Maybe there's some of us here today that we just need to turn to you and say, Jesus, I'm sorry. I know that I have sinned and I give I just repent of that sin. I don't want it anymore. I'm turning away from it, and I'm coming to you. I believe that you are the way, the truth, and the life. And I need you to save me. I need you to rescue me from my sin. And I believe that you alone, Jesus are enough. God, I pray for the believers in the room. God, for some of us, we've lost sight of the fact that you are all sufficient. Lord, we trusted you for salvation, but somehow we believe that sanctif- sanctification was all our responsibility. Lord, the, we just took over the reins and we forgot that it's really all about you, that you alone are enough. So God, I pray that you'd give us a new vision of you, that you would well up inside of us a passion to worship you and serve you and obey you, not to gain your love, but because you've already given it, Lord. That there's not one single thing that I can do to add to the love that you've given me. But God, help us to be so motivated by the fact that you love us fully, you accept us fully, you approve of us fully, and we are fully yours because of Jesus. Lord, I pray for maybe the third kind of person in the room. The person to say their faith is just kind of dried up. Or that maybe it's been so long since they had these thoughts of you. They know they've been saved by you, God, but they just, man, feel like they've been slugging it out and they've just kind of given up. I pray that today you'd call them home. Or that maybe they believed a false gospel along the way. God, I pray that you'd bring them home. That just like the Christians in Galatia that Paul was saying, return to the gospel. Return to Jesus. He's the way. He's the truth. He's the life. Return to him. He died for you. Return to him. He is the way. I pray, God, that some of us would return to you today. That maybe we've become religious and therefore bitter. Somehow we thought it was about us and we lost sight of you, God. Return us to you, Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Jesus, we love you and we are so thankful for you. Help us to respond now in a way that would worship you and exalt you because you alone are worthy of our praise. Amen.